The Tapes is supported by Horrified, the website that celebrates and champions British horror, covering films, television, books, fiction and more. You can visit Horrified at horrifiedmagazine.co.uk and find them on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at horrifiedmag. The Tapes is part of the Pod Dojo Network. Hello, my name's Dr. Kieran O'Keefe. I'm an applied psychologist uh, based at Buxton University, and my particular areas of expertise are parapsychology and investigative psychology. And I got into parapsychology and the scientific study of the paranormal about 30 years ago, to be honest. I mean, I was fascinated by ghost stories at a very, very young age anyway. Um, had read a number of different authors and seen a lot of ghost and horror films at such a young age that my parents were genuinely concerned um, about my reading and watching material. But because of that, and then Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World a few years later, and then the movie Ghostbusters when I was 13, it kind of set me off on kind of a passionate route for wanting to do more kind of around ghost hunting type stuff. And I ended up doing a psychology degree over in the States and then specializing in parapsychology for my undergraduate thesis and working at the Institute of Parapsychology in Durham, North Carolina, where parapsychology all started, albeit 80, 90 years ago. Um, and off the back of that, did a master's in investigative psychology, which is about psychological assistance to criminal investigation. So things like police interviewing, psychological profiling, um, hostage decision making, um, or hostage negotiation and decision making around that critical incident work. But I specialised again when I was doing that master's in psychic detection. So looking at it as kind of these are external advisors that may help or hinder investigations. And because my conclusions are very much that they were a hindrance, if anything, even if the ability does exist, there's still a hindrance to criminal investigations. And it was actually off the back of that thesis and then running um, and organizing a conference based around psychic detectives that Richard Wiseman got in touch with me from University of Hertfordshire and asked if I'd be interested in doing a PhD, a parapsychology-themed PhD, which I did, focused on mediums and psychics and weird and wonderful practitioners of the paranormal. And Whilst I was doing that, a colleague of mine, Matthew Smith, who had also done his PhD with Richard Wiseman, and he was now based up at Liverpool, said that there was a job going in a department that was sympathetic and open-minded to paranormal stuff, and that they'd welcome an application from me. And I applied. And then various universities afterwards, kind of from Liverpool to Paris to Toulouse, um, to Derby, to Oxford, and now I'm at, based at, at Buxner University, where I've been since 2012. Fantastic experience. Quite a journey. Has there ever been any kind of conflict with sort of general psychology and this kind of little area of it? There has been a conflict, but I don't want to paint a picture that it's like a, a battle, you know, or mm. like you know, a shouting match that happens. But there has been a conflict, and that's partly because of the history of parapsychology. So on the one hand, you've got a scientific discipline that has been plagued with fraud. 
So the people that are tested within parapsychology, you've got a number of high-profile incidents where those that were tested were found to be using trickery after the fact. But also you've got a number of high-profile studies where the actual experimenters themselves were also committing fraud. So you've got that as a kind of detrimental, kind of tarnishing aspect to the science. Plus you've also got a misperceived association with the psychics at the end of the pier. So if we're studying parapsychology, we must be interested in kind of these psychics at the end of the pier, and that's not real science, but also then Mm. the association with ghost hunting. And of course, within the last 20 years, there's been an explosion of ghost hunting shows and parapsychologists, and parapsychology is automatically associated with those. So the reason why I say sympathetic is because historically, parapsychology has been regarded as not a real science. Mm -hmm because of the topics it studies, but also because of these, um, you know, um, kind of controversies that surround the science. Then if you translate that as a historical discipline into an academic university, there's always the worry from universities about what is it going to do to their reputation. So is parapsychology seen Mm. as a genuine scientific discipline? But also related to that is there are very few places for parapsychologists to publish. And universities are always very interested in reputable and high-profile journals, but also encouraging grant research grant money. And within the parapsychology world, there are a few journals where you can publish in, but they're parapsychology journals. They're not mainstream psychology. I've been at a slight advantage because the way I always approach things is a very sceptical outlook. And because of that, a lot of my publications, even though if you read the conclusions, they kind of leave leave it open-ended, almost like a TV show. They leave it open-ended for the reader to decide for themselves. Mm-hmm. But I'm approaching it from a sceptical perspective. So I've been quite lucky to publish in mainstream journals, and that's helped with not having so much conflict in terms of what I do because universities have seen that I am publishing reputable journals. And and also, certainly recently, with somewhere like Buxton University and other universities too, there's recognition that actually we generate a lot of press interest in what we do because it's an interesting subject. It's a sexy subject, you know, especially around Halloween as well. So it's almost like free publicity to be able to have a parapsychologist who's happy to go on the radio or um, TV and talk about their subject. So in the past, there have been very few departments that will entertain parapsychologists as part of their faculties. And that's still the case now, but I think it's changing more with the recognition that parapsychologists are starting to publish within mainstream journals. It is now seen as more reputable, but we've still got a little bit of an uphill struggle because we'll always have that association with ghost hunting and also the psychics. So I suppose that over the years it's been kind of a battle for, for credibility, but not because of the actual the research is more to do with the association with, like you say, those kind of like mystics and kind of ghost hunting. Is that is that a fair assessment? I think that's a very fair assessment, especially because I've been in conversations with colleagues at all of the universities that I've been in that 
I'll say, oh, you know, I've, I've published a paper on researching mediums. And their immediate response is, but that's rubbish. Why are you mm. even bothering investigating that stuff? You know, potentially it's fraudulent or people are hallucinating or they're deluded in some way. It's not real science. And my response to that is always, have and you read the article? You know, have you read mm. the article I've written? Well, no. Okay, read the article, and then if you still think it's not science, then let's have a discussion. Yeah, yeah. Like I say, almost dismissing it just because of your own kind of sort of attitude towards, you know, those areas or those pockets of society, which when you look at things, those are as, as valid because it's, you know, you know, mystics and, and mediums and psychics and ghosts has had such a huge impact on society and culture throughout this it seems such an odd way because like you say even if you're coming at this as a way of really trying to get an understanding of like why do we tell ghost stories why do we believe in in, in ghosts what is there within humans that, that we feel the need for that or to reach beyond you know life you know and and to look at the kind of look into the to, to the afterlife or reach out to the dead that's that is in itself incredibly fascinating like you say even if you just dis detach it from the, the the sort of silly you know kind of like say end of the pier you know ghost train vibes very much an existential vibe that i get that whenever i hear people talk about their personal experiences with ghosts or you know wanting to go see mediums to contact dead relatives that's a really big thing i think and i think it would be would be ridiculous of us to sort of dismiss it just simply because it's not really serious is it but it is serious because to those people it's absolutely their lives that they have that need and drive to do that absolutely i think that's a really really good and valid point and you, you said at the end there about it being you know it's wrong for us to be dismissive of it i think it's even arrogant of science to be dismissive and just say oh let's leave well alone and the reason why especially when you think about psychology is because thousands upon thousands of people worldwide are having these experiences and if anything it's the responsibility of science to try and understand what's going on to or at least pay attention to it you know psychology is about understanding the way people think behave etc and that's what's going on with these ghostly experiences or telepathic experiences or any sort of paranormal experiences. People are having them. So at least let's try and understand them to an extent or acknowledge them and understand them. And there can be lots of different perspectives that you can take on it. And we know within the field there are historians, anthropologists, physicists, as well as psychologists and linguists as well, but as well as the majority being psychologists. And I think trying to understand what's going on is key, especially because the media, and including that books and articles as well, is rife with a cynical viewpoint that they can help explain what's going on with ghostly experiences. And actually, to be honest, although there's some interesting stuff that happens in psychology and we can almost transfer some of that interesting stuff from psychology kind of interesting findings and put it into a parapsychological parapsychological domain and say well maybe that explains it that's all we're saying is we're transferring it into that domain but the jury is effectively still out in saying 
no, definitively it's down to suggestion or definitively it's down to belief or it's down to infrasound or EMF or these sorts of things. You know, the research has not been done even for these natural explanations within a paranormal domain. So it does feel like there's more of a responsibility of science to at least take these things, things seriously in as much as we are listening to people's accounts and taking them as face value, but then trying to get an understanding of what might be going on. You because know, you go back, you know, with spiritualism, and then you, you sort of coming through to modern times, and like you say, you get those kind of those peaks where something like Ghost Watch or Ghostbusters comes out and, and popularizes it, and p- therefore, do you see more kind of people reporting paranormal activities, or do you do you find that it's more just as of an interest where you know people start selling more books, or kind of there's more discussions around that? Yeah, there's definite. Um pockets of popularity i believe uh, owen davis based at university of hertfordshire where i was he's a social historian and he's written about kind of the social history of ghosts um and how there are peaks over certain periods in history but also there are peaks in the types of ghost so we don't really hear about headless ghosts for example anymore or we don't hear so much about vengeful ghosts but those appear in particular periods in history i think if you look more at modern history given that I'm not a historian, so you know I don't know as much about that as Owen Davis, but the modern history, you can look at that and see very clear peaks. I mean, post-Second World War, even post-First World War, but post-Second World War, there was a huge peak of interest in spiritualism. And the reason why, of course, is that because people were interested in contacting the dead. After these huge great wars and with, you know, the death of loved ones and family members, friends, etc., and uh, you know that that huge kind of post-war sense. Um, there was a definite desire for people to contact, you know, and that's why there was an increase in spiritualism, both in terms of attending spiritualist churches, but also in terms of seances and contacting mediums. So there was a peak. There, you kind of rewind back thirty, well. 40 50 years to kind of the dawn of spiritualism anyway and of course there was a huge peak it kind of captured the zeitgeist of the period anyway especially because there were scientists involved in that sort of thing because they can they could kind of see as they were starting to to experiment and develop things like radio and even kind of the early cathode cathode ray tubes and how that developed then into moving images you could see how the work that they were doing was was they could see the parallel with what was happening in terms of contacting with the dead so there was a huge peak there in the public but also the scientific domain fast forwarding now to to more recent times i think undoubtedly two things have played a factor in uh, an increase of interest in this area generally One is the internet. You know, the internet has played a huge factor in terms of interest and popularity. Um, And that's for a number of different reasons. Also, because of the evidence that people are presenting, but also because of sharing ghost stories, even just in text form, but also being part of communities where people feel comfortable being able to share their stories and their accounts. I think that has had a huge fact that has played a huge factor as the internet kind of started to explode. And then you mentioned about Most Haunted, Ghost Watch, all of these TV based shows have been responsible for a huge huge surge in interest and um, more so i would say with within the ghost 
hunting community and also ghost beliefs rather than other areas of the paranormal. So I think about things like telepathy, precognition, PK, that sort of stuff. It's more about ghosts. And I think within the last 20, even 25 years, but 20 years and then a peak, I think reaching about 15 years ago kind of as most haunted and ghost hunters the, the the show ghost hunters and then off the back of that there were three or four incredibly popular shows that was a peak and the media led that but then now we have never seen so many ghost shows as there are on now on everywhere on television on streaming services on facebook on this you know peppered across social media it's huge and that that kind of um exposure to those shows has resulted in people kind of increasing their interest in it but also people doing their own investigations and joining ghost event companies to 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 do investigations but also then going onto the internet and talking about it. I don't, what's, what's interesting is I think we may have seen a slight increase in people um, kind of craving and um, capturing the ghost literature that's out there, you know, on both sides, kind of fiction and nonfiction. Mm-hmm. I think we may have seen a slight increase, but there hasn't been the explosion that I expected there to be. There's certainly been a lot more books, but, but, people seem to want their personal experience. You know, they don't want to read about what somebody has done in a book. They just want to go out and do it. But yeah, absolutely. There are, there are definite peaks. The explosion with, you know, the internet and technology and social media, it sort of seems a little bit counterintuitive to me where, like you say, it's a great opportunity for people to share their experiences, but it's also a great tool to do some research. I don't know, are people kind of ignoring what is available because really I, I just I love a great story I love a great mystery you know and I can I could kind of pick and choose what I'm looking at yes absolutely and I think there's two parts to that one is like you're saying is kind of almost I have an interest in learning about ghost stories and I've got a strong belief in ghosts so I'm just going to be interested in that and I'll leave aside the other stuff because I'm not interested in it and that's kind of one side of it I think there's another side which you're also hinting at which is cognitive dissonance so in psychology we talk about cognitive dissonance where you have a strong belief in something and you will take on board and listen to anything that confirms that belief and completely ignore anything that counters that belief. And that's the idea of cognitive dissonance. And I think you're absolutely right. The internet allows people to do the research if they really want to learn everything about poltergeist, for example. If they want to look at all manner of explanations or all types of experiences, the the internet is rife with so much information there. But absolutely, it's also a click of a button, isn't it? You know, it's a simple, I'll close that window if it doesn't fit into my worldview, if it doesn't fit into my beliefs. Um, So you said potentially it's almost doing a disservice and it's kind of counterintuitive. It's an extreme and a huge worldwide mirror of what I think could happen in a pub, potentially. 
you know mm. you could be you could you know back in the day before the internet you could be in a pub in england and be telling your ghost story and there'll be people that will latch on to it and go oh tell me about that and how were you feeling at the time and oh my god has anything happened since and others sitting there with their drink going that's ah, all bollocks isn't it you know a, a, and that's a micro version of what we see on a huge yeah. macro scale now mm. um so I can understand what you mean, that that people could be immediately dismissive of kind of counter-arguments to their own experience. But I, I would say you're just seeing a larger version of, of what has happened in the past with any ghost storytelling. The paranormal is obviously a massive sphere, particularly of research. And the tapes pod is, I suppose, ostensibly about the uncanny, which again is things that you can't really explain away. Do you think that a lot of these things people don't want explained away? And when your res- what point does your research come in? Because a lot of these are very personal stories, aren't they? They're very specific to individuals. I think Mark Commode recently said he had an uncanny experience of just feeling somebody behind him, for instance, and he felt comforted. It was a positive experience. And in a way, people like that don't, they'd rather think of it as it happened, it was unexplained, I don't want it explained, and it comforted me, and that that's they will hold on to that, even if someone like you came in and, and gave a perfectly good scientific explanation for it. So what at what point, at what level, how personal would it get for someone to approach you, or what would you research into, those sorts of feelings? But it's a really good point, and it, and it very much comes from the person themselves. Because if somebody doesn't want to hear an alternative explanation, there's no reason why they would listen to me. There's no reason why they would read my research at all. But quite frequently, there are two types of people that have these experiences. There are those that will approach me as an attempt, and they'll tell their story as an attempt to convince me that it's true or convince me that there is such a thing as a ghost or convince me that you know telepathy genuinely did happen. It's almost as though... There's a, there's a slight crusade. No, that's the wrong word. But a slight kind of desire, or, or, or um, yeah, almost yes, almost a crusade to say I'm going to convince the skeptics. You know, you, Kieran O'Keefe, Doctor Kieran O'Keefe, are always putting forward the natural explanations. Well, let me convince you. Here's my experience. How can you explain that? And in those sorts of circumstances, I'm quite happy to have a conversation with people about the possible alternative explanations, direct them to various books, my articles, other people's articles to kind of go, well, here's some writings about alternative explanations. There's always a caveat with those conversations, though. And the caveat is you had that experience. It's a personal, subjective experience. It is something that happened in the past. I wasn't there. You know, so I can give you all of these possible explanations, but they will remain possible. You know, and if you explore these explanations and you are still convinced that that was contact with a departed spirit, then there's nothing I can take away from that. That's your own personal experience. There are the other types of people who, rather than them trying to persuade me or convince me otherwise, there are the people who have had an experience and genuinely want to try and understand what happened. So they want to know, was it a ghost or was it potentially something else? And part of that comes from a, a, a genuine exploration of what is quite a significant experience. 
but quite a significant experience that in in many cases is changing potentially changing somebody's worldview or changing their belief you know they may not have thought in the past that there are such things as ghosts or may not have had a belief that the uh, you know those from the afterlife can visit and yet now they've had this uncanny experience and this has potentially changed everything so did it really happen so I frequently have those conversations or exchanges on social media or email or wherever where people are asking me about what do I think happened? And then they take it or leave it. And they take it or leave it because that's the way I present it. I'm quite happy to give you these alternative explanations, but seriously, it's down to you. And if anything, I am more impressed by people, both of those sorts of people, wanting to find out about the alternative explanations but they still having known that they still walk away going no actually you know what much as i enjoyed that theory about infrasound i'm actually going to think that this is still a ghost and this was a visitation of some sort i'm still i'm more impressed by that than i am by people who will not listen to the alternative explanations and who are like cynics within my field or within the scientific field who ignore people's experiences there are those that have the experiences and it's almost like you've got as we know the belief spectrum from dogmatism to cynicism you know so you get those who are dogmatic believers who will just completely not be interested at all in alternative explanations and the cynics on the other side who are not interested in the evidence that's being presented for the paranormal and it's that midpoint which i think is is the most impressive and i have the most respect for on both sides of the camps you know when people have an experience they learn about the alternative explanation so no kieran thank you very much been enjoyable talking to you but actually that was still my dead grandmother that visited me on that particular evening. So if they're coming at it from a religious perspective, for instance, they might be even more set in the ways, or particularly on the, the, the side that it must be spiritual or it must be something to do with the afterlife. Yes, although the religious connotation takes a really interesting one. I was brought up in an Irish Roman Catholic family and kind of surrounded by, I won't say this stuff, because then that implies that there are ghosts all over the place when I was growing up. It wasn't so much that. It's just that there was a, you know, a fascinating side to Irish Roman Catholicism that involved things like possession, stigmata, exorcism, which as a boy growing up fascinated by ghosts and horror, I absolutely lapped up. I thought it was amazing. But when you take that, for example, Roman Catholicism as kind of the religious aspect and, and, you start to talk to people's experiences but from that perspective that takes on a, a very negative perspective which is you shouldn't be messing with this stuff it's the devil's work you know you can't have these sorts of experiences because that is absolutely the devil's work you know and we see it in some cases that i've been investigating recently some older cases you see instances of individuals who are catholic going no actually that's very negative but there are other religions that will have different perspectives on it so yes you're absolutely right tom that that when there's a religious aspect to it it gives a different perspective but also people who are very religious where these experiences fit within their religion are not more dogmatic but more convinced you know, and more confident of their experiences. Absolutely. 
And then, of course, if you if you end up going into the world of kind of looking at the the Quran and how the Quran talks about this sort of stuff, I find that absolutely fascinating. You know, when you when you get out of Christianity and start looking at that, for example, they are just accepting of a version of ghosts that they call jinn. Um, and it is almost like, well, it's not even a debate. It's not a question. It's not an argument. It's not a discussion. This stuff just exists, you know, which is a very different perspective from, from kind of the, the Christian perspective. So a yeah, fascinating route to go down. You mentioned earlier about developments in sort of technology over the years as, as a way, as, as a, again, as another tool to investigate paranormal kind of experiences and things and obviously you know we've got the internet which is this great tool depending on how you want to use it you know you've now got kind of very sophisticated cameras and microphones to record things and heat sensors and has development of technology helped in the investigation to debunk or actually kind of leave more of a question around these kind of paranormal events no, I think technology has become a, a, a distraction for scientists in the sense that we would hope with the development of technology that it would be able to provide more answers and be able to, like you say, debunk certain experiences, especially where, for example, it could be down to particular levels of electromagnetic fields or it could be infrasound. You know, these are environmental variables that can be measured they can be measured with the advance of technology and technology becoming cheaper and more affordable and more portable all of those devices can help actually the ghost hunting field in terms of technology has gone in completely the opposite direction that the technology that people are using has effectively been developed to hunt ghosts and to detect ghosts um, so you get a mix of of gadgets and tech that has been designed by pseudo scientists inventors who think that they understand what a ghost is and they develop technology around it and then sell it for ghost hunters to use to detect the voice of a spirit or detect mm -hmm. the presence of a spirit and and there's there's nothing scientific about that sort of stuff at all the other side of it is that you will also find ghost hunters using environmental monitoring equipment, but in the in, in in the wrong way. They'll be using it again to detect ghosts, not to try and debunk. Mm -hmm. So I'm I have an uphill struggle when it comes to EMF meters, electromagnetic field meters. I mean, even even at its base, the electromagnetic fields meters that are used within ghost hunting anyway are not really detecting the sort of fields that would be of interest in terms of science saying these fields can affect your brain in a particular way. Mm -hmm. So that's the first point. But even if they are using EMF meters, they'll be waving them around. And when there's a peak and they're showing a reading on their EMF meters, they'll go, well, that's a ghost. You know, that's something there. And and actually, that's a misunderstanding of, of what's going on and why you should use EMF meters. And it's frustrating for somebody like myself. But then also, I think um, that somebody like myself, but also parapsychologists, have, have a lot to blame for it. 
You know, I think mm. our involvement, and I say our because it's myself and, and a few others, in the media, we have a possibility to change that narrative about ghost tech. And we too often find ourselves in popular shows walking around with tech or, you know, listening to a ghost mm. box on a table and going, oh, that was an interesting voice. And we can kind of offer alternative explanations but maybe the best way of doing it is saying, I'm not going to use this because it's pseudoscience. I'm actually going to use this to detect the environment, you know, the environmental variable and detect that as a way of debunking the experience. So, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a minefield of pseudoscientific tech mm. at the moment out in the ghost hunting field. You're using virtual reality in your research. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, the virtual virtual reality stuff has come about a little bit from more convenience than anything else. Um, it's because I became very interested um, several years ago now in fear um, and how fear can play a huge influence on people's perception. So having done hundreds, if not a thousand, of ghost hunts and some of those ghost hunts being on public events where you're observing the public do ghost investigations. You're aware that they're in a situation where they're fearful. They may be anxious about what they're going to experience. They're also tired as well because, of, you know, when it gets to two, three o'clock in the morning, who isn't? But also they may be using stimulants, so coffee, Red Bull, etc., to kind of keep them awake. And all of those things can play a factor can play an influence on their perception fear is a huge overarching um, factor and whilst fear can be quite useful in some respects because it can it can potentially help you focus on the thing that you are fearful of it can it can almost distort your perception in such a way that you're, you're misinterpreting things that happen now in an ideal environment i would be taking um physiological um monitoring equipment so stuff that measures your heart rate your lung capacity something called your galvanic skin response which is effectively your sweat response it's a way of looking at um uh, again these these kind of tripartite factors in, involved in your f your physiological fear kind of your physiological reaction to fear now in an ideal world i take that out into a haunted location you know and as people are walking around I would have that attached to them. But kind of early days when I was setting up the psych lab at the university where I was based, the, the level of measurement that I wanted, it wasn't portable. So you could just have a heart rate monitor. But in terms of looking at all of those three things, it wasn't portable. And also I'd be going to a location and having somebody walk around. It wasn't a controlled environment. The VR environment presented a perfect opportunity to do this in a controlled way that even though it's VR and people are aware of VR, you can very quickly become immersed in that environment. And it kind of mirrors potentially what happens um, out in the real world, whilst at the same time, you're able to measure, sorry, measure those physiological factors, the heart rate, lung capacity, and galvanic skin response. So um, I... Um, partnered with a games student so a final year game student of all things who was um, using unity a programming software or kind of writing software to create a virtual environment and 
um, he developed simply a corridor, a corridor that first look, his first kind of base was uh, an old dilapidated corridor in an old rundown hospital that had been abandoned. But because he was able to program it, we were able to alter things like the level of the ceiling, the lighting level, the number of doors that you walk past in the corridor, how many are open, how many are closed, the sound in there as well. All of these features he could alter. So you could see, is there anything that makes people more fearful versus other things? And I find that absolutely fascinating. There's some other stuff to do with eye tracking that we're kind of getting into a little bit now. And we're we're in the process of purchasing a system that allows you to look at eye tracking within the virtual reality environment, which would be quite cool as well. Kind of where are people looking and are there population stereotypes for where people think the ghost is? you know, and that sort of thing, depending on, on the building. So so VR itself has been a godsend in terms of being able to present that because, of course, you can do that in just like 10, 15-minute sessions and just have constant participants to build up the data. So, yeah, huge fan. I saw the little video that was posted uh, off the back Battersea Poltergeist podcast, and it showed the presenter, he was in the, the VR headset, and he got quite, um, you know, he looked pretty frightening to be honest with you and then you place them in another room a sort of dimly lit room can you explain what the purpose of that was yeah so that was different obviously there's there's an element of wanting to have a lovely narrative that fits with the Battersea poltergeist anyway and the vr environment what i had to do was ensure that he would become quite scared very very quickly in an ethical way um and so the VR environment that we used was not that single corridor. Yeah. And, and I talked with Danny, the presenter, about that and said we could send you through there. But it's, you know, he's investigated a lot of this stuff. He did a podcast in the past where he, he you know, talked to a lot of people about ghost stories. There's the sense that if you walk down the corridor, that's it. It's just kind of walking down the corridor. He may not be fearful enough. So we had permission from the developers of a, VR environment called the bellows so that he could walk through that which is a lot more scary than the one that we have set up for experiments but yeah we did perception tests before and after to see if there was any difference um in the scores which you see fleetingly in that in that um promo but then put him into a haunted environment and and what i was trying to show with that is not is not part of my vr fear experiments although i might make it now because it was so successful with danny but it's effectively showing the conclusion to my research which is that fear can affect you physiologically in such a way we can do pre and post tests with perception kind of standardized tests and we know it affects your perception but how lovely would it be to have that situation where you're then immediately after all of this where the fear is built up you're thrown into an allegedly haunted location and how do you start to misinterpret what happened and with danny i put him into a front room that was set up to look like a 1950s front room so we had the suggestion element to the Battersea poltergeist. Effectively, without me saying it, there was also the suggestion element that here was an experiment and here was an experiment in which he would, you know, set things up for him. So he went and sat in that front room 
and at various points he reports things. So he put he said at some point you don't see it on the promo, but you see kind of a mock up of a, a, cup, a cup moving. But actually, in his experience, at some point he says the atmosphere just completely changed. And in his mind, he was going, well, of course I know that because Kieran has switched on an infrasound generator and he's creating that sense that there's a change in atmosphere. And then he reported hearing a scratching sound, kind of a little bit of a far off scratching sound that was happening during the session. And then he said, and then he, th he thought he saw a shadow walking across the window, you know, and he's, and afterwards talking to him in the debrief, he said, well, of course, yeah you know i wasn't really that scared but at some point the atmosphere did change which of course was the infrasound that you set up and then i could hear that you were scratching in that other room and then i i saw you walk across the window and the producers were, were laughing and the cameramen were laughing because i was with them the whole time and i said well the whole point was that there was absolutely nothing set up nothing set up but it just shows you wow. the power of fear mm. You know, it was just completely heightened to the extent where, you know, there's an imagination that played an effect as well, but also there's the potential misinterpretation of something that could be quite mundane. You know, we were three floors up. Nobody was going to be walking in front of the outside window, but it could have just been a bird going across. Yeah. It could have been anything, yeah. you know. So yeah. it was a fantastic, fantastic to witness. And if I can get ethical approval for that second stage to the study I, w I will do because i think it's absolutely wonderful with the caveat they're there that there has to be a lovely debrief afterwards and a calming down of the participant <laughs> because yes danny was um yes quite fearful at, the point, at that point uh, it's, it's fascinating it really is fascinating hello crime fans i'm sean coleman i'm chris mcdonald and i'm rob parker we are crime authors well I'm a publisher too. And I'm a giggling buffoon. <laughs> <laughs> we are the Blood Brothers and this is our podcast. Every week we speak to the best and brightest in the world of crime fiction. And embarrass ourselves hugely. No, that's just you. Yeah, definitely just you. Great. Coming to you from the Pod Dojo Network. And sponsored by Red Dog Press. We've got new episodes heading your way all the time. With giveaways and games. Interviews and insight. And laughter. Lots of laughter. Check us out now. On all your favourite streaming services. And give us five stars so we can't be our own one-star superstar. The Blood Brothers Podcast, your one-stop shop for the best crime chit-chat. You mentioned earlier about, as a child, kind of devouring anything that was about the paranormal, the supernatural, ghosts, and like say the, the Arthur C. Clarke's, you know, the series of books that he had, which I it forever stuck in my brain is the uh, the photo of the um, uh, spontaneous combustion. Yes. The, the, the leg. I will ne yeah, I'll never, I'll <laughs> never, that's it, seared, literally, almost seared. It was bad fun there. <laughs> um, but yeah, so can you talk us through kind of what, um, what really strikes you as kind of you feel that was something you either loved or really influenced you, you know, at a young age to to delve more into the sort of the uncanny and the and the supernatural. Um, I guess, well, at a at a young age, so I would say under the age of ten, I was in a position where I was very much interested in. 
there were various children's TV shows on at the time. Rent-A-Ghost was one. You know, that was a children's show, Rent-A-Ghost. Scooby-Doo was on at the time. You know, there are various children's shows that I was, I was lapping up at that particular point. Um, and there were a few ghost stories that I was able to get hold of from going into secondhand bookshops with my parents, and my parents being none the wiser. So M.R. James is a prime example. Um, even H.P. Lovecraft as well, which is particularly gruesome, some of that stuff. And I read Dracula at a very early age as well. So fascinated by all of that. I think the turnaround really did, came, did come for me in kind of the early teenage years. So I was 13 when Ghostbusters came out. But also Books of Blood came out. So Clive Barker's books, Books of Blood, and just yeah, blew me away um, with his and, and I was and I actually loved short stories more so than anything else. So I I'm with Stephen King, there's a little bit of a love-hate relationship there. I have tried so many times to read his novels and not quite got into them. But the number of times that I've read Skeleton Crew is ridiculous. I just love the short stories there. So, yeah, absolutely. I think the turning point for me and the, the stuff that really influenced me was Clive Barker's Books of Blood. Um, it was... Um, Stephen King and Skeleton Crew. It was Ghostbusters as well, but also Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World, which was on television, and then the Unexplained magazine. And I still have the full set of Unexplained magazine, the bound copies and everything. And at the time, was getting it, you know, on a was it weekly or monthly basis? I can't remember now, but I got every single mm. copy of that magazine. And like you, some of those images. Spontaneous human combustion image being one, and also you know some of the ghost photos as well, the brown lady of Raynham Hall and various others, kind of seared into my mind, and I'll never forget them. So, yeah, absolutely, absolutely fascinated by, it. and and all of that was happening whilst at the same time I was lapping up horror films as well. You know, so there's a lot of horror films that were out at the time and a lot of horror films that weren't out, that you weren't allowed to see because they were genuinely banned, you know, from the UK. But but through kind of various horror circles, I was getting hold of dodgy VHS tapes and managing to watch these films and loving it, absolutely loving it. So there was a fascination with fear because I was enjoying it, but also a fascination with the weird and wonderful. Hmm. Obviously, the, the the one to sort of pull out there is, is obviously Ghostbusters because having you know that deals with scientists investigating you know ghosts. Do you think that had the most impact, obviously career wise, or was it just it was just, it was just about the supernatural? It was just about the ghosts. It just happened to feature sort of scientists. You know, we at the age of thirteen thinking that's it. There's my career. <laughs> Well, I was thinking that's it. There's my career to the extent where I even called up Columbia University after seeing the <laughs> film, you know, called them up and said, you know, is there any truth to the idea that there is a lab, even though it's a film, there is a lab at Columbia University that looks at this stuff? And they were like, no, please just go away. <laughs> but luckily, that luckily that phone call, you know, even though the person I spoke to had obviously had a number of similar phone calls and was just completely... <sighs> just lost patience with anybody that called and asked a similar sort of question. Um, I caught her on a good day and she said, but you might want to look into the Institute of Parapsychology 
based down at Durham, North Carolina, where all of this stuff started. Um, and it was just lucky that, yeah, she, she'd recommended that. And I got in touch with the Institute of Parapsychology, sent them a letter at a very early age saying I was interested in this stuff. And they sent back a letter that provided some very good advice. It was Professor John Palmer, um, who's still around. Um, and he wrote back and said, yeah, this is what parapsychology is. This is what we do. Here's some information about the Institute and a little bit about the history. Our recommendation to any budding parapsychologist is always make sure you get a qualification in something else first, because it's such a small field, but it's such a controversial field that you always need to have something to fall back on in case you don't get the work that you want. Um, so, yeah, so because of Ghostbusters, you know, it wasn't just that I was seeing them there with a cool car and proton packs and everything and just being enthralled by it and thinking, how cool would that be to have these gadgets and go off and Ghostbusters, which I still, you know, still had as a teenage, you know, a young teenage boy. I still had that idea, but it also then became a turning point for presenting kind of this scientific side of things, but the advice of what you needed to do to go forward and as i as i approached kind of 18 i i was thinking i'm gonna go into kind of psychology area i wasn't sure about the music side because i've been a musician and and playing music since the age of four so i wasn't sure which way i was going to go and a lot of the choices were combining the two either sound recording or kind of music psychology so i always had that in my mind but the psychology side i was always thinking i'm actually going to go this route because of ghostbusters you know because of where all of that happened so huge huge turning point and you say that kind of then discovering kind of more kind of i suppose more adult kind of horror films was there anything that kind of stuck with you or, or anything that you really love well like i said i was in a position around that time of watching films that i should not have been watching so texas chainsaw massacre tobe hooper's original texas chainsaw massacre would be a classic that was not allowed at that particular point even evil dead so people forget that the original Evil Dead at some point was banned in the UK. So I should not have been watching that. Clockwork Orange was another one, um, although not horror, kind of horror in terms of human behavior and that sort of thing. Um, <laughs> you're asking me which which horror movie had, you know, was, was no, maybe not so much the biggest influence, but, you know, which which horror movie did I lap up and kind of had a turning point? Yes, bizarrely, it's it's nothing ghostly at all. It's not really one of those. Actually, it was the movie Bad Taste that was a huge <laughs> turning point for me. Peter Jackson. Um, yeah, Peter Jackson's kind of schlock horror. Yeah. Just, yeah. And I think it was because I hadn't seen many of these, uh, or hadn't seen, I don't think I'd seen any of the kind of, you know, schlock horror, the gory stuff mm. and kind of, um, movie stuff and but that kind of gore kind of brain dead i mean there's a whole genre there toxic avenger so after Bray, after bad taste that became the point where i kind of started to lap up all of these mm. um these gory films so yeah bad taste i remember very specifically as being kind of a wow look at this you know i'm really interested in that the other one is texas chainsaw massacre 
and and the 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 thing for me about Texas Chainsaw Massacre was I wasn't I wasn't so enamoured with the gore part of it, and that really didn't have me. It was the anticipation. So it was being in a house, and and there are there is a point in the film where it it becomes you know a, a bit of a gore fest. But there are various wonderful points as they're in the house, and kind of they also um, you know discover Leatherface as well, and there's kind of a chase scenes and stuff like that. But kind of the initial where they're first in the house, there's that amazing anticipation of what is around the corner or what is about to appear behind a door. And it's really built up. And even to the point where the first victim is, is abducted by Leatherface, kind of the sliding door. And then, you know, that point you've then, you've then still got anticipation that occurs with the other innocent victims within that particular house and that, for me, was a huge turning point too, because it was how much, how fearful you can be in situations of not knowing what's going to happen and not knowing what's there, you know. And if anything, that's fed into my research now, and and fed into my observations of of what people are experiencing in haunted houses. The fear of not knowing what is there and not knowing when it's going to happen. And that was key to Tobe Hooper's original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, I think. Mm. It's a brilliantly kind of constructed film in terms of like the sound design and just the way it looks. It's just the sound of the sound like Polaroid camera, like a clicking. And that it just gets under your skin straight away. And that, like you say, the anticipation is obviously most of the time is, is far more interesting and far more exciting than actually seeing it. Obviously, there are exceptions, I suppose, with some films, like you mentioned, those kind of those, those very gory films. The fun is seeing the gore. But you mentioned that, that list of films, those gory films, they're also full of humour. You know, like yes. Toxic Avenger and the Peter Jackson ones. There's a lot of black, dark humour in there. And obviously, Ghostbusters was comedy. Again, is that is that something of interest with it? That it is. I mean, Evil Dead is another classic one. Mm. You know, there's there's a, a, a brilliant, brilliant horror comedy. Um, so, and that series as you move into Evil Dead two and three. So, yes, I'm fascinated by that. I, I I think what's fascinating about that link between the horror and kind of the the ghostly stuff and comedy plays out real time with people's experiences in haunted houses. To be honest. Because and you see it in haunted house, but you see it in the cinema when people are watching horror films. That shock, that you know, here's the reveal. There's that scariest moment, and then what happens? People laugh. Mm-hmm. You know, you get that kind of com- almost com- not comedic reaction. I guess it is comedy. I've been in some horrific locations absolutely horrific locations and people have been sat there and they've been kind of crouched around a tiny tiny table in for example an old abandoned prison that had some of the most horrific prisoners um in the world in there and they're kind of sitting around and they're going is there anybody there is anybody there and it's that anticipation and then a door goes and there's a bang and everybody goes, wow, and they're screaming at the top of their voice. They stop, mm. and then people laugh. Mm. You know, and, and the people laughing is that 
that is that association, but also the comedy of the fact that you are trying to contact a spirit in a horrific location. Something happens and your response is to scream and then laugh. That mm-hmm. for me is 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 comedy. You know, so the gory stuff, you know, I, I don't think I ever screamed at any of the gory stuff. It was always so overt and kind of was led into in, in almost comedic sequences. But there's an element there that you can see in real life, which is that association between the two. But, yeah, I've, I think I have always been fascinated by, you know, the, the horror comedy um, genre, mm. it, it, especially, you know, um, I mean, I mentioned – um um but uh brain dead and toxic avenger and, and some of that stuff yes absolutely but i think sam raimi does it brilliantly with evil dead and evil dead 2 evil dead 3 starts to get a little bit too comedic mm-hmm. and then of course i think sam raimi tried to follow up with the evil dead films with an actual comedy that just did not work at all you know, and I think his skill has been horror comedy. So, yeah, big, big fan of that genre. You mentioned, <laughs> to mention Mark Commode again, he talks about that quite, quite, quite bang with the horror films. It's the anticipation, the anticipation, the anticipation, then the release. And it, it is a bit like comedy. You, you're setting up the gag, and then the audience are like, oh, we want it, we want it, we want it. And then, ah, it's gone. And then they, then they laugh as they would do as a joke. And they are linked, aren't they, somehow? Yeah. Yes. Definitely, yeah, absolutely linked, and I think there's a, there's a there's almost um, an aspect there of kind of a coping mechanism as well. It's kind of re-regulating kind of what's going on internally in terms of being able to laugh, and that has kind of a particular chemical reaction that kind of you know is able to compensate for the huge adrenaline rush that you've got. So there's an actual physical process going on there, which which. Um, I think is fa- absolutely, which I think is is fascinating in itself. Um, but I'm also interested. I'm also very much interested because I have, so I have three hats: parapsychology, investigative psychology, but I've always had the music psychology there as well, and I've done a lot of work on emotional response to music. And so, as a kind of an amateur, I'm very interested in the use of music in horror and ghost films. And although there, you know. Um, my wife, for example, is not a fan of the remake of The Woman in Black with Daniel Radcliffe. She prefers the first one, and actually it's because of the first one, I think it was a, um, yeah. a TV film, mm-hmm. it's because of the first one that she will never, ever watch any films like that at all. Now, it's like. because of that first one that she watched when she was a child. But I made us, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I made her sit down and watch the remake, she didn't like it at all, and you know there's been a, a, a lot of criticisms of it. There's a sequence in it which I think is remarkable for thinking about it from kind of a music perspective. So many horror films and ghost films have the anticipation played on and the expectation by the use of music, and particularly key music and the way that you know it's often strings as well, but there's kind of key key use of music to build the anticipation and sometimes then it's a false you know outcome and then there's the real or sometimes it does build to the real but you just don't know you know the real outcome with the woman of black there's an amazing scene where daniel radcliffe is walking along the corridor the top corridor into the room where he discovers you know the lady in the corner, the the, the the classic scene. Now the scene itself, where he discovers the lady, is not scary in my mind, as a, you know, in terms of remaking 
what happened in the original. Him walking along that corridor is completely silent. Completely silent. There is no music at all in that scene. And I noticed it immediately because I'm always kind of having that slight ear open for for how are they going to achieve this thing. And it was incredibly powerful. And I think because we kind of become acclimatized to hearing the tension and expectation and anticipation build with music, that suddenly here was a long corridor that he was walking along and there was no music. There was actually silence. And I felt for the first time in a long time, my heart going at the expectation of what is he going to come to? Because hmm. for some reason, I want there to be the music to build the anticipation, so I know, but actually there's nothing there. And I found that slightly unnerving as well. So, Do you have any kind of particular kind of favourite scores or soundtracks for horror films? Because like, to my mind, obviously, there's like, obviously there's John Carpenter's and then there's... But for me, I think, you know, the, the opening sounds of like The Shining is one that will always kind of just, just gets you straight away. It's just, it's, yeah, it's, it's so, it sounds like a ghost. It sounds, it just is a perfect mood setter. So is there anything that kind of springs to mind? Um, yes, yes. I mean, like yourself with John Carpenter stuff, absolutely. Um, I, well, music that always fits into my mind, and I think because it's against type, is The Exorcist. You know, and and uh, the use of tubular bells within The Exorcist is mm-hmm. is it's an against type, and I think that was courageous at the time. You know, you've got some classic movies that came out around the time of The Exorcist. Um, Rosemary's Baby, of course, was very close to that, and and you know some some incredible movies that were using standard musical approaches to to horror and to, to kind of fear. And the Exorcist, that just that tune. I mean, just that tune sticks in my mind. And and there's nothing, there's nothing creepy about it. But just the use of it means that mm-hmm. it will always, forever, be associated with that film. You know, mm-hmm. and it's actually not one of my favourite Exorcist films. Is Exorcist Three. Um, so it's not my favourite, but it's always going to have that association, the tubular bells, with mm-hmm. some quite iconic scenes in that in a Friedkin movie so that would be one of my favorites no, I think it's, it's interesting when you do when you see you know like say a, a filmmaker who picks a piece of music that isn't necessarily what you would assume would play over that scene but because it's like you say it's, it's contrasting it's almost that that's what's more unsettling because you're kind of used you're hardwired to hear that the, the you know like you say the strings or the just the tinkering kind of a, of a, of a piano that when mm-hmm. someone's using something, it's quite, yeah, just very unsettling. And it's kind of, like I say, it's quite courageous because you would normally just go, oh, let's just put some strings in, let's get do a little thing. Sixth Sense is, an, is, a, is another one, but I mean, there's some cheesy usage there and quite corny usage within Sixth Sense, but there's some aspects of the sound there that I think are interesting where kind of the air conditioning and kind of um, some of the noises in the background is almost musical in the sense that they build up the atmosphere. Mm. And that was done um, by having lots of people groan and lots of people make noise. And then it was all put together in kind of almost this soundscape that actually was made to create the sound of air conditioning units. But, 
but you're listening to it going well yeah but there's actually something unnerving to it and then come some some of those themes of the air conditioning units and units and machinery that was in the background that was created with the soundscape then became part of the music as well so you know i think i think that was quite interesting in terms of how that was done although that's not you know um one of my preferred or favorite films but yeah i i have that slight ear all the time for what are they what are they attempting here with sound and music it's fascinating so, yeah. you've got this musical background because the two are linked an awful lot our, our friend and colleague rob he whenever i've watched a horror film with him most people if they're a bit scared they cover up their eyes don't they but he covers up his ears and it's that it's that sense of impending doom <laughs> that he finds much more scary so yeah. in the shining when danny the boy is going around the corner as much as the girls, uh, they're probably one of the scariest things I've ever seen. But it's that the the sort of the strings and the, the slight triangle that clicks when they see them that that's intrinsically linked in my mind. And if I try and watch it but don't listen to that sound design, I'm like, oh, it's nowhere near as bad now. <laughs> so they are linked, aren't they? It's horrible. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely, they're linked. Yeah, try actually living, you know, and staying in the Stanley Hotel oh, no. for. <laughs> however many nights I stayed there, which is the inspiration behind The Shining and walking down that corridor that looks almost identical. And as you're walking around that corridor, you're actually yeah. hearing that music. <laughs> and you get around the corner and think, yeah. are they going to be there? Yeah, scary moment. And the noise of moment, the, like said, the, yeah, the thing he's, he's driving, you know, the little toy he's driving, the, the cart thing, yeah. The little tricycle. On the yeah. carpet yeah. and on the, the carpet. Carpet. They're them, all yeah. building anticipation, aren't they? It's horrible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant. I think David brilliant. Lynch is very good at sound design as well. He, that, that he he he's not he's not overtly kind of like a horror director, but I, I think that he's his ability to unsettle you. I think he's using sound and just using images. Mm-hmm. I think he's is astonishing. Like say he also uses that kind of industrial kind of sound, doesn't he, to layer things? Yeah, the- I mean it's interesting with David Lynch because you're then tapping into kind of the whole Twin Peaks territory and how he was able to you know use that mm-hmm. bizarrely i was never actually into twin peaks i was i was kind of into at an earlier age what i would say would be the uk equivalent of a series that was completely off the wall in the same way that twin peaks was which was sapphire and steel um yes. you know and there you've got to kind of you know bow mm-hmm. in respect to the bbc and their um what is it called? The phonics workshop that the the sound the radiophonics, workshop. yeah, radiophonics, mm-hmm. yeah, and the, the way that they were using kind of sound at very very early days, way before Twin Peaks, you know, with with some very off kilter and uncanny and unnerving sequences with with sapphire and steel. So, yeah, fascinating. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll definitely be, that's on the list to be covering <laughs> is sapphire and steel because it is like you say, I've. I I don't think I've ever seen a, a, a particularly like you say a British TV's program that it feels like everything is just made and produced to make you feel completely unsettled <laughs> and not to eat every, from like you say from the sets from the acting from the dialogue to the lighting the sound the music everything about it is just so yeah just unsettling it's an astonishing TV series so unsettling and of course I was watching it at an age where, you know, I was secretly watching it at various points and I got caught watching it by my parents. And, 
I remember it vividly, them sitting down and watching it and just going, you should not be watching this. Because, of course, I was, yeah, well, when it started, I mean, it ran for a few years, but I would have been eight or nine years old when I was watching Sapphire and Steel. Mm. Yeah, they weren't, they weren't happy. The same way that I remember my parents catching me watch watching um, the sequence in the, the VW Beetle at the beginning of um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. They kind of caught that sequence when they pick up the hitchhiker and kind of that gruesome sequence mm. there. And they're just like, oh, my God. And I was grounded for weeks and weeks and weeks. And they said, how, <laughs> how can you watch this? This is just horrible to the point mm. where they were even considering getting a psychologist involved thinking that, that i'm lapping this stuff up for some macabre reason of course i hadn't told them that i'd watched takes a chainsaw massacre about 10 15 times before they <laughs> discovered me watching it but yeah sapphire and steel fantastic absolutely mm. fantastic show so i'm delighted that you're going to be covering it uh, really am i look forward to listening to that well thank you so much for your time it's been i'd say i could i could talk for at least another hour about your research and the subject so i'm really grateful for, for you giving us your, your time to have a chat yeah, wonderful. No problem. thank you very much it's been a fascinating chat Are you a Bond fan? I mean, really a Bond fan. If you enjoy dreaming of what 1991 and 1993 Tim Dalton films would have looked like, or if you have a degree in Octopussy, but still don't know which Fabergé egg is a fake, then the Really 007 podcast is for you. Really 007. We bring an insightful, critical, and silly take on the James Bond films. We are proudly part of the Pod Dojo Network and are available for free on iTunes and Spotify. We have regular, in-depth reviews of every Bond film, as well as special episodes on different aspects of the series. And some of us are a bit down on the Craig era. Robert. While others are happy to pretend to dislike things just to get cheap laughs. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook and join in on the James Bond conversation online. Really, Dublin.